friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have a lively show ahead. We're going to talk about having children and not having children. With so many couples carrying the cross of infertility, Dr. Marie Mimi joins us to discuss this issue and what she has learned herself from years of infertility. She has a new book called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. But first, my colleague at the TCA, my co-hostess Ashley McGuire, will be joining me to talk about people choosing not to have children. Thank you for joining me today, Ashley. Thanks, Gracie. It's always great to be with you. It really is. It's really it's really wonderful to have you on. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to somebody about infertility, a woman who wrote a fabulous book about what happens when you get married and you expect your family to happen and then it doesn't happen, and how difficult a cross that is to bear. But uh, that'll be in the second segment of the show. And in this first segment, I wanted to talk to you about the fact that many people are choosing not to have children, and people are finding it difficult all across the globe to form families, to get married and then welcome children into the world. And we know, all of us know, if we're paying any attention, that we are facing a demographic, bleak demographic future because it makes total economic and social and cultural sense that a society has to be, for it to function properly, you have to have a nice, healthy cohort of young people in a society. Not so many of the elderly in relation to the cohort of the young people because that's unsustainable on so many levels. So Elon Musk talked about this. He said that one of the biggest challenges facing humanity, if not the largest challenge facing humanity, is a dearth of children. And most people are not, or maybe if they think about that, they're not applying that to their own situation. They see themselves much more as individuals making their own individual choices, but enough individuals choosing not to have children results in a world without children eventually. What um, what are your thoughts about this, about this demographic winter we are facing? Yeah, I mean, it's clear we live in a society where children are not valued. They're not protected. They're treated like some weird combination of accessory and commodity mm-hmm. and placed as secondary to the, you know, individual desires and quote unquote fulfillment of people. And, you know, in this recent survey that came out, the data was kind of shocking. I mean, it found that the single most common reason that people cite for not wanting to have children is they don't want their independence to be limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and and let's be fair, let's be fair, children do limit limit one's choices. They limit one's independence, the hours of sleep that you can get and the choices that you make during your year, whether that's vacation or places to live. I mean, these are these are real concerns. And I can see how people just facing their own individual lives and their day-to-day choices could see children as a big daunting burden. Oh, sure. Yeah. No, I think, you know, it's important to not, to not gloss over or be flip about the takeaway. There was a USA Today article about this survey. And the takeaway was, you know, very refreshingly candid. It said, you know, if we want to reverse our demographic issues, the change has to be cultural because um, that concern led other concerns that you would think would be the primary reasons 
um, financial reasons, work-life balance issues. I mean, we certainly do have ourselves in a bit of a quandary in the sense that we have created this economy where in most situations, two incomes are required uh, for people to be able to afford having children. And so that makes people feel really limited. But interestingly, you know, those concerns, the financial concerns, work-life balance concerns are not, are not the leading reason. And it, it shows that you know, this is where people's priorities are. And, and I think you're, you're right to say that certainly children are limiting, but I think that's a limited way of looking at life. And that's, that's, I think, where the conversation is, is, is life all about, quote unquote, individual independence, personal fulfillment, or is there, is there more to life than that? And, you know, you know let me, let are, me clue in our listeners into the questions and the responses, because I think they were super interesting so, um, some things that were mentioned uh, as, as things that might keep you from choosing to have children. So, 28%, only 28% reported that climate change influenced their decision to not have children. 33% indicated housing prices. 31% was the political situation in the United States. 31% also safety concerns. Personal finances was only 46% and work-life balance only 40%. The only thing that broke the 50% mark was the question of personal independence. 54% or a majority of Americans who don't want to have children said that this was their main reason, personal independence. And I think that I, I really, that's a really, really telling thing and it, and it makes complete sense to with what I've been seeing anecdotally, because very often people assume that um, couples aren't having children because children are so expensive. And you see that all the time. People say, oh, of course they can't have children. They're just too expensive. But then you notice that the big house down the street has maybe fewer children than the little house down the street. Or the, you know, the couple who, who both have jobs and maybe the father has an extra part-time job and they might be having more children than the couple who has a lot you know, a much easier way to ba to balance their work and their life. And you see, so so there is some, so that does make sense that, that people are looking for a lifestyle and that the children don't fit the lifestyle. And it's not so much, as the survey shows, it's not so much more things that seem more comprehensible like finances and even less comprehensible to me like climate change. Although you, de you do hear that all the time in the media, they say, well, you know, children and climate change. So you would assume that some people are listening to that and are, and, and are being scared away from kids. But according to this survey, that's not true, or at least not, not significantly true. Well, and I have to say that I actually found the climate change number sort of shocking. I, I, I have a hard time believing that one in four people think that concerns over the climate are a reason to not have children. Well, and people who are in childbearing age have grown up having this uh, drilled into them from, since they were very young. So that might, that maybe to you and I, who are, uh, might be a little older, me, I'm not in childbearing age, but you are, <laughs> maybe younger people than us um, have had more years of exposure to that terrible cry, don't have children, you'll damage the planet. But go ahead, you were saying. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I think you are right. I, I, this was one of the reasons we pulled my daughter out of public school was she came home in kindergarten complaining about the carbon footprint of her nanny. And I, I was just, <laughs> yeah, uh, her nanny, who's, you know, a first generation immigrant who, you know, has done nothing but lovingly care for her since she was an infant. And so I just, I think there's a little bit of a, a warped 
sort of anti-human, I mean, component to the whole environmentalist approach. I mean, certainly we should be concerned about the planet, um, but not to the point that we think that humanity is, <laughs> is best off being, you know, whittled away. Um, but, you know, another thing that I'm always struck by is when I drive around the neighborhoods around here and in the DMV, how you see these Centerbrook colonial homes and they all have these big additions, you know, on each side. And uh, those homes were built when people were having four or five kids. And now they have these giant additions and the average birth rate now has fallen under two. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, you know, yes, I am in the childbearing age and I know what the cost of childcare is. I know what the cost of housing is. I know what the cost of education is if you want to rescue your kids from public school. Um, but at the same time, I had four kids in a 1500 square foot apartment for, for many years because, you know, we kind of lived the urban life. And so I think we have, there is too much of a sense of like the dog, the tail wagging the dog, this idea that every kid needs their own bedroom. You know, if you don't have a giant backyard, your kids, you know, are not well served and thinking about the needs of kids in the, in the wrong way. You know, at the same time, there's no discussion of what are the needs of children having a loving and married mother and father in the home. Well, you did, you opened up, you opened up by talking about children as commodities. And that is a very, a very dangerous thing that, that all of us are, have to guard against falling into, right? Like children, children are a right that people ought to have children uh, if they want them, and all of, it, society has to provide that 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 child for them. Um, that's that's commodification of children. Uh, the fact that children are only really acceptable when they're wanted, right? So the unwanted child gets aborted. Uh, the unwanted child is a crisis, but the wanted child is is this um, this wonderful gift to them, to all of humanity. But what separates the wanted child from the unwanted child? If simply an adult's opinion of that child. And I would say even the wanted child, sadly, in our culture is some sort of an investment product. Like, okay, you know, the way we sort of break down the cost of children, like here's what their schooling's going to cost. Here's what this is going to cost, you know, as if that's their worth is um, the expense put into them and then their outputs. What are the degrees that they go on to obtain? What are their achievements? What is their earning potential? Um, as though, and, and so, again, as though those things redound to the parents' credit. That what, right. what does it, what does it benefit me if my child goes on to grow up and and become, you know, a tech millionaire? Maybe I'll, maybe they'll invite me on their nice vacations, but it's not, it doesn't help me in any way, shape, or form if my child becomes a tech millionaire. But people seem to think that that's somehow you're investing into your children and then they're going to, you know, create these beautiful futures for themselves and somehow that'll be your great achievement, that they're hyper successful. Do you get that feeling too from talking to, to you know, talking about the way people view children as sort of piggy banks? You sort of put money into them and eventually you break open the piggy bank? I don't know when that happens. I haven't seen it happen yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Or just an extension of sort of your own unfulfilled dreams and desires in terms of, of success. But, you know, I think all in all, it's not surprising that that is the number one reason that people don't have kids, even more so than the financial reasons, because our culture has become so hyper individualistic. Uh, We have no sense of 
our obligations to each other um, and, you know, what is even the meaning of family? What is the purpose of family? What's the purpose of marriage? Uh, it's just all kind of about, you know, me, me, me. But the sad thing is, you know, I'm doing this women's group at my church and um, we're going through Father Dave Pavonka's metanoia study, which is about, you know, the ongoing process of conversion. And, and the theme for today was about basically your cross, like self-denial. And that, that's, that is what we are ultimately all called to. That is the Christian understanding of life is that we are called to emulate Christ and his self-denial in service of others. And that's just such a radically, it's so pitted against our current culture's understanding of what the meaning of life is. Um, but you know, if that is your understanding, then, then family life and, and children is kind of like the highest good in that ordered society because, and, and, and the point of this is, is deeper, which is that in that sort of denial of self, that is where we find true freedom and happiness and Mm -hmm. meaning and purpose because that's where we find God and you know, so that is where the real sort of struggle is at in our culture. Um, and unfortunately, all of the messages and inputs that people are getting are are those of our culture. Um, and it's, it's very hard to live differently and, and see it differently. That being said, I sometimes think, yes, it's true that children are quote unquote limiting, but you know, it's not, it's not like, okay, the day you have a baby, like the jail cell closes and you, you know, <laughs> like you can still, I mean, you have to make uh, concerted choices, you know, working with your spouse, but, um, but maybe, you know, maybe Ashley, you're, you're right to bring it down to more philosophical, to a more philosophical point as, as you just did, because how do we understand ourselves? As, as people, who am I as a person? And I think that there's two very separate ways to, to look at ourselves. There is what's very, what's becoming more and more popular every day, which is that you are this amazing, you know, independent, um, in, you're, you're this amazing individual person full of possibilities. And your job in life is to maximize all that fabulousness inside of you, right? You're going to live your best life. And, and you're going to discover wonderful things about yourself and you're, you're just going to be this fabulous sort of comet streaking across the universe, right? That's one way. The other way is I'm, I'm a person who is enmeshed in all these different relationships that each come with a different duty. I have a relationship to God, number one. I have a relationship to my husband and my children and my parents and, and my family as we expand outwards, uh, my community, my neighbors, my country. And... With all those, I'm a relational being, and with all those relationships come duties. And I think those are the two ways that you can look at a human being. And if you look at yourself as a relational being with um, who's nested in all these complicated ways with all these complicated people around you, and, and then, of course, the nation and, and everything and the church and God, then you find, you find, you find sweetness in the duty. And you find joy in the fulfillment of the duty. And then you want to be free to fulfill those duties. And then there's the other way, the first way I mentioned. And children belong in the second camp, but they certainly don't belong in the first camp, except as, as we said before, as commodities, as props, or as, as, as things, that people that make us feel wonderful about ourselves and, 
and fulfill us at certain points in our lives when 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 we accept that fulfillment when that fulfillment feels sweet to us no no definitely and it's certainly a dangerous you know the first the first understanding the comet streaking through the sky it sounds great but it's actually pretty dangerous because you know when you apply that mentality beyond kids to just you know others what kind of do we really want to live in that world where you know we don't want to be we don't want our independence to be hindered by others you know when you start moving beyond just the parent child relationship to what about you know your own parents or people in your life who are in moments of need uh your friends when they need you maybe in you know more than usual in a way that it's you know becomes a burden or you know if you apply that mentality farther and farther, you know, what kind of sort of Hobbesian world is that where, I mean, it's, it becomes a survival of the fittest world. Sounds great until you're down on your luck mm-hmm. or until you get in a car accident. Um, and you know, so. Yeah. It's, it's an ugly, cold world of individualized people bouncing off against, you know, bouncing against each other and sometimes knocking each other off the page. Right. Because they're not, uh, there's no compassion. There's no acceptance of duty, of the duty yeah. to our fellow man. You know, right. Confucius, I read recently, Confucius, one of Confucius is um, the Chinese philosopher, of course, uh, said that uh, children have a duty to give their parents grandchildren. And that sort of stopped me in my tracks because I'm desperate for grandchildren. Two of my children got married last year. And, and then I thought to myself, but that's absolutely correct. We just, we have gotten so far from thinking of ourselves as relational beings with duties to each other. I, I've given my parents five grandchildren. Those five grandchildren to my parents and to my in-laws are tremendous sources of joy and consolation and support. And they surround them with all this love. And every year that passes, they need that love and support more. So I did have a duty you to know. give my parents grandchildren and I... What a beautiful way to think, right? But if you say that to most people out there, they'll say, are you crazy? You have to have children because it's good for you, not for your parents. <laughs> well, that reminds me of something I once heard Leon Cass, a great conservative scholar, say at an American Enterprise Institute dinner, gosh, probably 12 years ago, um, where he said, the way you repay your own parents for what they did for you. It's a debt that can't be repaid. The way you repay it is by investing that in your own children, that you sort of pay it forward, if you will, by bringing up and cultivating the next generation. But it's, 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 it's a debt, but it, it can't be repaid mm-hmm. to the person who provided it to you. And, and that makes me think of this Billy Collins poem that my husband loves to read called The Lanyard, where he talks about it's a story of a boy at a summer camp who weaves this, you know, those little silly plastic lanyards that kids Mm -hmm. like to do. My daughter has like five of them on her backpack and he gives it to his mom thinking like they've settled the score. And it's so, it's such a deep poem because it shows that there's a sense that children understand that what they, what their parents have done for them is so wonderful. Um, And we can only sort of, repay the debt, if you will, with, with what we're capable of. But, you know, when you reach adulthood, the way that you give that back is by perpetuating humanity, by Mm -hmm. 
um, bringing up the next generation. And sadly, in that same speech, he has a quote that I use all the time in articles where he talks about the fact that this has been devalued because as a society, we only value work in the workplace. We don't value the human work of not just the work in the home. He's not just talking about stay at home moms. He's talking about friendships and, and civic relationships and all these other relationships that originate from our communal natures and from our understanding that actually as humans, we understand deeply in a, in a deep innate part of our being that we do actually owe, you know, have obligations to the other. So I'd say the comet streaking through the sky mentality, you know, the first mindset may be the prevalent one, but it's, it's fundamentally anti-human and we all know it deep down. And one thing you mentioned that a generational issue that you, you receive from your parents and then you pass it to your children and you create these generations. And I worry all the time in a, in a world where people aren't having children, their sense of the possibilities of the future are very small. They, their, their horizons get very short, right? So if you have no skin in the game for if you have no children and, and no grandchildren and great grandchildren to follow you you don't really have any skin in the game in the future of the world of, of humanity what's going to be what's our world going to be like in 50 years in 80 years in 110 years for people who are involved in that generational uh, adventure those are real questions that that keep them up at night but if your horizon is as short as your own lifespan then how do you become invested in, in, in making the world a better place? I think you mostly are invested in making the world a better place for you, um, or that you could very easily fall into that. Right. No, it's so true. And, and that reminds me of a, a quote from Pope Francis at the World Meeting of Families where, you know, on a similar theme, not the same point, but a similar theme, he talked about the fact that family is the place where we first learn to live together despite our differences. And I think about how, you know, siblings are such a gift because they help shape you to be a more tolerant individual to grow up, you know, because, because each kid is so different from the other. And often, you know, in families where there's disability or special needs, um, you know, that's where you learn to be a tolerant person who learns to, in a civil way, uh, Basically, it's like a crucible of civilization. You learn how to, you know, negotiate and, and be merciful and, and be just and share and share. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, there's something almost kind of communist about the, the family, um, the family, but not. I mean, that's that's a terrible comparison. But, you know, yes, there's some private property, but it's minimal. And, yes. um, you know. <laughs> Um, well, now yeah, you're no, assuming no. now you're assuming a family with at least one child, but we're really we're really seeing something that's never been seen in the history of mankind, which is many, many, many people not reproducing at all, like going through their entire yeah. lifetimes without reproducing. And this brings up another point that I'm always very curious about. I think all of us always assumed that children were were something that people desired as a good. But I worry that with the advent of birth control, ubiquitous birth control, we've discovered that people, humanity doesn't actually view children as a good. Maybe they viewed sex as a good. And then children were 
this wonderful side effect that they learn to love. And, and I really do worry about that. I worry that somehow there's something wrong with something wrong with our DNA <laughs> that we've that we've um, you know that we're we, we've so easily given up the blessing of children just because they're not side effects of sexuality any longer. Well, it's certainly a side effect, I think, of a culture that has separated reproduction from um, sex and yes. in, in multiple ways, both cutting it off, but also, you know, creating it artificially. But I also think, I, I mean, I think a huge problem is that I don't know how we got to where we are, but the idea of what goes into raising a child has become so strange and warped, um, you know, that kids you know, whether it's, you know, the idea that kids have to co-sleep with you or they're going to have like permanent emotional damage. Or you have to I breastfeed mean, them forever. <laughs> until they're two. I until mean, they're two. Like when you get all these messages just, you know, from the doctors and the health world and all, it's, it's very overwhelming. Um, and so I'm sympathetic to prospective parents who are like, this is unmanageable. But the reality is that um, what kids need most are sane, loving mother and father and siblings. Um, and that, you know, we don't have to kill ourselves. So I just want to push back a little bit on some of the idea that, um, having kids needs to be as, um, pristine of an experience as stressful and as overwhelming as as an experience as some of these experts would have you believe. I totally agree with you. A house, a house with children in it is not a perfect house. There's a lot of imperfection going on all the time. And that's really, really good for the children. It's good for mom and dad. It's good for the people who visit that they see us, um, you know, embracing our imperfections, embracing each other's imperfections. And that's, that's a beautiful way to live. And, and I hope that, I hope that the tide turns and that we, we somehow learn again the the blessings that that children bring and learn to love them uh, for what they are, which is pure joy. I think children are pure joy. Even even though my children have made me suffer, I still think that they're pure joy. Yeah, I agree. And I think you know maybe it's like the, the days of old when stories had to be passed down, you know, person to person. Maybe the cultural work right now is is just you know one person at a time. Um, changing their hearts about uh, what bringing children to the world really is. Well, amen, and thank you so much, Ashley, for joining me today. Thanks, Gracie. with Consequences. I am your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are very happy to have Dr. Marie Meany with us for the rest of the show, discussing a very important topic that uh, touches so many couples across the nation and across the world, of course, which is infertility. She's out with a new book called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. Welcome to the show, Marie. <laughs> Thank you, Gracie. Very happy to be here. <laughs> 
You know, this is a this is a fraught topic. Uh, people who haven't experienced infertility still have family members who have, and people that they love or acquaintances or friends. And we know that it's a very very painful thing for many people, and it's and it's a painful thing that goes on for a very long time. You you've written a beautiful book about infertility and how, as very often happens in in, our, in all of our lives, the thing that most pains us can also become the thing that that most helps us grow in spiritually and closer to God if we if we grasp that cross. At least that's how that's how I I understood your book. So tell us yeah. tell us about how you came to write this book. What brought you uh, to your knees, as it were? <laughs> yeah. So you know we got married. Didn't expect any issues, of course. Lots of families, members having many kids, you know, and then we're surprised that it wasn't happening and went through the whole thing of, you know, denial and anger and always embraced the teaching of the church um, about infertility and regarding IVF. So we didn't want to go that route. We tried many of the things that we can get into later, if you so wish. But what I felt was difficult was just how do I deal with the everyday? I mean, my, my heart was breaking. Infertility is compared to the loss of a child. It's simply a child that you never meet, that you never get to hold in your arms. So every day you work with, or you walk with this incredible burden in your heart and this longing for a child. And where do you go with that? What do you do? Sure, we, you know, we pray, but it's, I felt very helpless. And of course, that's part of the journey. And that's where you need to be in order to cry for help. But I thought, you know, I want to write about my experience of this and what helped and what didn't help. Because unfortunately, I did a lot of things with the best of intentions that ultimately were not helpful. And I thought, well, that way I can help other couples who are in that situation deal with it. And I can also write it for the family members and friends who are surrounding the couple and who often don't know what to say and how to deal with it. And unfortunately, often end up saying the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing without wanting to. I wrote a first version of this book when I didn't yet have a child. In the meantime, we, we have one child who's 13 years old, but it took us nine years to have that baby. And that the first version I wrote was before we had her and we didn't know whether we would ever have children. So I really wrote it in darkness. And then over the years, it uh, got longer and I wrote it in different languages. And now I got back to the English version and really expanded it, um, also with more experience and more hindsight. But that, that's it in a nutshell. There's an ache in, in our hearts that's when, we, when, we, when we're hoping for a child. I haven't had a personal experience of infertility, but there have been times in my life when I really, really wanted another child. And I mm -hmm. would see babies at mass and my heart would, would just squeeze. I would have these horrible feelings of terrible strong desire uh, of un of unsatisfied desire of terrible need yeah. and i imagine yeah. and tell me if i'm wrong i imagine that that's the kind of thing that people experience women is, i i imagine women especially uh experience yeah. all day long over decades if if this is a problem that goes on and on yes that's that's very true i mean there is such a thing as secondary infertility so people who would like to have more children and for whatever reason can't have more. And that's, that's a real suffering, too. I mean, true, there's the consolation of having some children, but you still, the longing is there, and it's very strong. And I have to say, you know, we would have loved to have more children. And we had one miscarriage after Therese, which was absolutely heartbreaking. But, you know, for a long time, I mean, my, my pain wasn't over once my child was born. I mean, don't get me wrong, it makes a huge difference to have mm -hmm. a child rather than to have none at all. So, But your um, longing, your longing continued. the longing is there. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. And, you know, and men can also have this strong longing. I mean, generally, there's one person in the couple who's suffering more than the other. And it's true that most of the time it seems to be the woman, but sometimes it's the man. Because people do have different experiences. Some people are not really phased by the fact that they can't have children. 
Um, and that's okay, too. It's, you know, just people's psychological makeup or the way, or the way their lives ha- have gone. You, you never know how you will react if it hits you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, I didn't mean to generalize by saying that mostly women. I, I, there's something about um, the female, I, in my mind, and in my experience, there's mm-hmm. something about our the way we're made to receive yeah. children, the way we're made yeah. to receive love and turn it into this co-creation with God that's so spectacular. And I don't know, I feel like men are a little removed from that, but maybe I'm just being really unfair and blind. No, no, I, I do think it's right what you're saying. And I mentioned that in my book. I think we are so set, our bodies so set for babies. And once we have children, all our time and the psychic energy goes into our children, um, which it never does for, for the men. So I, I think it is. it tends to be harder on the women. Um, also, another thing that's hard on women is that so much of your social life depends on your children. Once you have children and, and after a certain age, not having children can be hard to, to fit into other people's lives. Did you Do you think that's true? Yes, that's very true. I mean, all your friends are, are having babies and you're not part of the conversation. And of course, you know, if they're good friends, they will try to to open it up to you, but you just, you can't connect. And when we, early on in marriage, we moved to a place which had, where there was a huge Catholic community, really, really wonderful. It was Front Royal in Virginia, and there were tons of kids. I mean, people with 7, 10, 13 children. And there we were, you know, no kids. And, and that was very hard, A, just to see, to witness day in and day out, and and B, not to be part of that conversation. That's true. And as you were saying, you know, for men, things are a little bit more remote. They have their jobs. Now, of course, women have jobs, too, and have centers of interest. And I'm passionate about my work, but it, it always left me unsatisfied. I felt, you know, I'd give my career to have a child. I wouldn't care if I never did anything professionally anymore if mm-hmm. I only had a child. And I tried to turn to the professional life thinking that that could replace it. It never did. So as long as I saw it, well, this is my vocation and, you know, it's a good thing, that's fine. But if I try to say, well, this will replace the child, it, it doesn't work that way, unfortunately. It's, it's just a pain that you can't, you can't replace, you can't fill by, by, by something else other than God. One thing that moves me when, when I read the Bible is the way that God, through His Word, through His revelation, He enters into that pain of childlessness. Do you find that too? I do. And I have to say, I found Mother Teresa incredibly helpful when she writes about our inner Calcutta. And what she means is those places in our hearts that are so painful or that are so dark where we feel nobody can get in, no human being can get in. And we often don't let God in because we have this wrong sense that somehow we have to be perfect before we can unite ourselves to Him. And this is precisely where He wants to be, that God could come into my heart on those levels that was tremendously helpful. Now, these kind of things are can be very twisted, and you feel that, well, if I accept this cross, then it's not going to go away. So whenever I thought, like, oh, I'm going to be infertile for another five years, ten years, for the rest of my life, it was impossible. I couldn't say yes to that, you know? But once I realized I have to say yes to this per second, per minute, not longer than that, not for my, my whole life, but just for now, I have to say yes to God to this. And that worked, and that sort of set me on that path to mourning, into allowing God fully in, because we tend to be very heady persons to think of, well, yes, with my with, with my mind, I'm saying, and, and sort of with the tip of my will, I'm saying yes to God, but I'm really blocking Him out, and I'm not even realizing it. It's because this journey is very painful, and I have to break that pain down by doing it just one second, one step at a time. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Dr. Marie Meany, discussing a very important topic, that of infertility. She's out with a new book called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, turning infertility into a journey of hope. Marie, tell us uh, from your book, what are the things that, that you, where you went wrong that you would like people who are experiencing mm-hmm. this, this sad trial 
to mm-hmm. to learn from from your mistakes. Sure. So the one that was I wanted to be courageous and heroic, and and those are quite good intentions, but I didn't realize that I have allow my have to allow myself to mourn. I have to allow myself to really to really cry about this and realize this is a huge cross, and not sort of just pretend and put a cheerful face on for everybody and myself and try to fool myself and God that somehow this is not so hard. So, so that was a big roadblock for me. And once I figured that one out, things things got a lot better. Another thing was you know, we tend to go into denial and think, well, it's just going to happen. And so we don't take early on the kind of measures that we should in order to try to resolve it. There can also be this wrong sense. I didn't have that, but there can be this wrong sense of, you know, God will take care of it. And yes, of course, God takes care of it, but he's given us medicine and great doctors. And when we have an appendicitis, we go to the doctor and don't expect God to heal us. And the same is for infertility. You know, once we realize that something is going on, um, I think the earlier, the better. Another thing was a sort of false expectation that it shouldn't be so hard, sort of imagining themselves sort of sailing through this difficulty and, and, and realizing, no, it is heartbreaking. You are hanging on the cross. It's excruciatingly painful. And it is normal to feel that way. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not, you're not doing something wrong by saying, like, this is so painful. I should be in a place of great joy and peace. And sure, God can give some people joy, even in incredible suffering. And there, there are examples of wonderful saints, um, even those that are not canonized yet, like, like Chiara Corbella in, in Italy, who, who had a birth to children who died shortly after their birth. And then the third one, um, she got cancer and then died shortly after the birth of that child. And she sort of, you have the impression, sailed through it with, you know, with, with joy. But there were moments of joy and there were moments of harness. But the point is that the normal way is sorrow. And that is, that doesn't mean you're not doing the right thing. It doesn't mean that God isn't with you. It means that you are with Christ on the cross just now. And, and, and this is what it's going to be for a while. But not to give up either, because God is walking with you and... There's a fair chance that you will you will see the light at the end of the tunnel, even if God may not give you children. You will get to different different points. And another thing I'd say is like if it gets too hard, if you feel like you are you're skirting depression and even before, go and get professional help. Go and see a therapist. Find a good priest. Don't feel like you have to be with us on your own. And then don't uh, be afraid of really opening up to your spouse. Um, it's hard because men and women deal with things so differently, and women tend to have to talk more about things and cry more, and as you say, men are more distant, and they want to try to fix things, and for them it's very frustrating to see their their wife so upset, and they don't know what to do, and they feel helpless, so it's very important to communicate and to show to each other how you can help each other. Like, for example, telling to your husband, I really need you at this doctor's appointment because it's so difficult sitting in that office where all the other women are pregnant and you're not and your heart is breaking or have your husband help you look for new therapies or other approaches off the beaten path and see whether they work not to do all of this on your own because it's a very lonely place so these are the kind of things I'd, I'd, w- I'd want to say to people who are struggling that, with that and that I would have liked to have heard early on in my journey. In our Catholic faith there are certain things that we, we don't tamper with we're not supposed to tamper with like the that moment of creation uh, shouldn't be done in a petri dish it shouldn't be done by IVF Um, and other subtleties that that are not that subtle but they feel more subtle than than that shocking thing of IVF right where you create a whole human being 
um, yeah. so mechanically. Was yeah. it very? Is it very difficult for people, Catholics, who are trying to be faithful, to to not be tempted into these these aggressive uh, fertility treatments? Well, first of all, I'd say it's it's completely okay to be tempted. Temptation is part of our spiritual journey. Sure. So um, if you feel tempted, that's okay, and it's I, I'd say it's normal because it is offered to us as the way of resolving your problem. That's the idea that doctors have, first off, almost. You know, do that, and if you don't do it, then it's your own fault. And if you look at some of the websites of these clinics, I mean, it's so tempting. It seems so promising. I mean, you just have to do this, it seems, and and you have a baby. So um, I have to say, my husband and I were lucky because we never were tempted, but I can completely understand how one would be. And, of course, what people often don't realize, the people who have gone through this, then say, you know, it was harrowing. It was absolutely awful. I mean, it's very hard on the woman's body and psyche, all the hormones that she has to do and the kind of surgery that she has to go through. And, and of course, what is often not made clear is that it's not sure at all that you will have a baby in your arms at the end of this. I mean, the percentage has gone up from like 10% to 36%, but still, you know, one-third of a chance that you have after having gone through multiple cycles. Um, and that means having lost babies that have been... Uh, that they put into you and that haven't implanted. Um, so, so all of that is very hard. But I think you put it very well, um, Gracie, in, in making clear that, you know, this is not the place for a child, something as precious as a child, to be conceived. I mean, we're so tuned in today into the fact that we sing to our babies in utero, we talk to them, we want to avoid any kind of trauma or shock to the mother because we know what kind of impact this might have on the child. And somehow the conception doesn't enter into this, like it's unimportant that a child would be conceived in a petri dish and would be at risk of its life because it's technicians, it's doctors who decide, well, this one looks good, this one looks better, we'll toss that one, this one will freeze. You know, this is a very, very dangerous moment. And, and, and that shouldn't be the case. And um, so I think just con- contrasting that to a child that is conceived in the loving embrace of its parents that is safely nestled in its mother's womb very fast and is there for nine months, that's a completely different story. And it's no wonder that more and more we can see that people are traumatized, have been traumatized by this experience. You know, you can go to these self-help groups and you can read what, what they say. And to them, it is just awful, the fact that they will, would have been conceived in a clinical surrounding, that money was perhaps even involved. So I'd say to, to couples, you know, think you already can think as a parent now, even though you're not a parent, you don't have yet have a child, but you can think as a parent in terms of, I want what is really good for my child. Well, that's, so, you, you know, know, that's a very good point that you make in these days when infertility is a social thing. It's being, you know, people talk about social infertility. So two men are considered infertile. But of course, the true definition of infertility is what you say, a man and a woman in their childbearing years having relations that don't, re- that don't eventually result in children. Uh, that's yeah. that's the actual definition of infertility, not two men, of course, who can't possibly naturally have a child. Yes, exactly. And that's, of course, the, the terrible thing about these methodologies, that then they can be used, further abused, mm-hmm. <laughs> by, by all these different situations of either women who are much too old to have children. And, and that's, you know, do you want your mom to be 60 when you're 10 years old, to be 70? You have to start taking care of her when you're 10. You know, there, there's a reason that nature has put into place certain things that you can't have a child after a certain age. Or, as you say, you know, same-sex couples, um, it's, it's, it's not good. <laughs> and it also opens up children to be seen as commodities, which is a terrible thing. Something that you go and acquire, that people, if you have enough money, you can, yeah. you can get one of these little treasures. Yeah. A few years ago, my, I went to China and, and adopted yeah. a child. 
after sec- after oh, secondary wonderful. infertility. Yeah. But we had children at home. We were traveling with a group of about 12 couples in China. Yeah. And all yeah. the rest of the couples had been infertile for a very long time, some for 10 or 15 years. And yeah. I watched them receive their babies in their arms, their yeah. little girls. And yeah. I was transported with joy. But what I saw in their faces and, and heard in their voices was um, like... like like walking into heaven for them when they when yeah. they were holding their yeah. little children. Tell us what it yeah. was like for you when when you finally welcomed a child into your family and oh goodness, <laughs> as you say, it's walking into heaven. It's it's unbelievable to finally after all these years, you know, hear that you're expecting and and of course the worry in between when things looked a little bit dangerous. But then to have a child, I mean, my husband also was saying this was the most amazing experience of his life. We were just we felt so blessed. I just for for years I felt. So carried along by this joy, and still, and still filled with joy. But you know, there's this initial joy, and then of course it was a little bit clouded by the fact that we wanted more kids. But yeah, we, we feel very, very blessed. It, it, she's my daughter's called Therese because we think it's she's a gift from of Mother Teresa. And she was supposed to be born on the first of October, but then was born on the feast of the Archangels on the 29th of September. So um, we'll take it. God, <laughs> That's a good feast. God, God truly blessed it. Yeah, <laughs> God really blessed us. Well, thank you, Dr. Marie Meany. And to our listeners, her book is called When Expecting Doesn't Happen, Turning Infertility into a Journey of Hope. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you. So we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday, which Jesus will speak to us about the importance of prayer in general, and praying for mercy in particular. He does so by means of the famous parable in which he describes two men who went up to the temple to pray. First man was a Pharisee. He prayed in the front pew. Thank you, God, that I'm not like the rest of humanity, greedy, dishonest, adulterous, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes on my whole income. The man was what most people today would deem very religious. He was going up to Jerusalem to pray. He liked his fellow Pharisees never sought to do the minimum in the practice of the faith, but as much as they could. Whereas Jews were required to fast only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the Pharisees fasted twice a week, whereas Jews needed to tithe only certain items. He tithed his whole income. He was outwardly a role model, but there was something drastically wrong in his conception of God, of the faith, and of others. First clue is that Jesus said about him, he spoke this prayer to himself, which doesn't mean he said it quietly so that he alone could hear it, but in a sense, that he was turning to himself in prayer and not to God, that his prayer, like his life, had himself in the center. The man thanked God that he was not like so many other losers, whom he said were thieves, rogues, adulterers, and publicans. He rejoiced in what he saw was his virtue, but he failed to recognize that he was proud, judgmental, vain, boastful, and uncharitable. He failed to see his own sinfulness. He didn't ask God for mercy because he didn't think he needed it. Compared to so many around him and the other person praying in the temple, he considered himself a saint among sinners. Jesus contrasts that man's prayers with those of another man, a tax collector, who went up to the temple to pray that day. Tax collectors and publicans were hated by their fellow Jews, not just because they were collaborating with the Romans who were subjugating the Jewish people, but because in carrying out their duty, they would routinely shake down their own people for greed. They were assessed a certain amount that needed to be collected in a particular area. Whatever they could get beyond it was theirs to keep. And many of the tax collectors were ripping off the poor precisely to live well. They were corrupt, similar to an ancient mafia class that the authorities with whom they were conspiring would do nothing to stop. One would think that someone in such circumstances who had given his life over to that type of betrayal of his nation and of so many people wouldn't pray at all. 
for him to praise some might argue was hypocritical. But he knew that even if others might never forgive him, God might. And he knew he needed God's forgiveness. With no arrogance, no self-importance, and great humility, he stayed in the back of the temple, beat his breast, and cried out, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He was conscious that he didn't deserve forgiveness, but knew that the Lord was kind and merciful. With great repentance, prayed for that gift. And Jesus gave a startling conclusion to his parable. He told his listeners that of the two, the good man who fasts, tithes, and lives outwardly by the Mosaic law, and the despicable one who shakes down his people and conspires with the pagan authorities, only one of them had their prayer heard and left the temple in a right relationship with God. And it was the publican. We've heard this parable so many times that we can miss the absolute shock that Jesus' first listeners would have had in response to it. It would be as if he had said that a pope and a prostitute went to St. Peter's Basilica to pray, but the only one who left justified was the prostitute. Such a comment was obviously not about the type that the two were of life the two were leading until then, but about the type of prayer they made. And the takeaway is that no matter what type of life we've been leading until now, we're called to pray well, which means to pray humbly with a deep recognition of our need for God's mercy. The parable points to what Jesus taught elsewhere. I've not come to call the self-righteous, but sinners. If we wish to go to church on Sunday and leave on good terms with the Lord, we need to recognize we're sinners in need of his mercy. Ask for that mercy and seek to live by that mercy. Only those who pray for mercy will receive it, because only the truly humble, Jesus promises at the end of today's parable, will be exalted. This is a great practical consequence in the way we come before the Lord in prayer, especially at the Mass. The beginning of Mass, as you know, we all confess, I have greatly sinned through my own most grievous fault. But do we really mean those words? Do we beat our breasts with sincere repentance? Do we pour ourselves into singing, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy? Or do we just go through the motions? Later in the Mass, when we pray the Lamb of, Lamb of God, you take away the sins of the world. Do we passionately cry out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us, and grant us peace? Perhaps most poignantly, when that Lamb of God incarnate is elevated and we behold him, do we pray with great conviction the words, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. There's a powerful story about Frederick the Great, King of Prussia from 1740 to 1786, who one day was visiting a prison. Prisoners knew that the king had the ability to pardon them, so unsurprisingly, many asked for that favor. Each of the prisoners the king spoke with claimed to be innocent, the victim of a misunderstanding or prejudice or simple injustice. Eventually, the king stopped at the cell of an inmate who remained silent. The king remarked, I suppose you're innocent too. No, sir, the man replied, I'm guilty. I deserve to be here. Turning to the warden, the king said, Warden, release this scoundrel at once before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people in here. The historical lesson is pretty clear. Do we go before the king of kings as someone who pretends to be immaculately conceived and sinless? Or do we go before him truthfully, asking for his mercy because we know how much we need it? Self-righteousness remains a problem. There are some in the church who, when they look at themselves in the mirror, deem that even though they may have their weaknesses and problems, at least they're not like those who have really sinned. By having, for example, conceived children out of wedlock or gone to jail or whatever they think they'd never do. They might admit that, sure, they need a little of God's mercy, but nothing near what others need. Jesus gives this parable as a wake-up call because such an attitude can incapacitate our prayer and the life that flows from prayer. Such self-righteousness isn't just a problem for those who, like the Pharisees, actually try to live religiously. 
can also afflict those who live like the publican. Something that's very popular today in our culture, and even in some segments in the church. Those who are clearly violating the Lord's commandments left and right, by engaging in lifestyles totally incompatible with the gospel, by never praying or coming to mass, or by feeling justified, hating those neighbors they don't want to love, rather than repenting for their sins and coming to beg for God's mercy. Sometimes they can glory in their shame and attack the church, or those seeking to call them to conversion. They can pray like this. I thank you, Lord, because I'm not like one of those hypocritical and intolerant more modern Pharisees who worry about fasting, who worry about coming to church and praying, who worry about tithing, who worry about going to confession, who are constantly sticking their nose into my life, but who in real life are worse than I am. St. Luke tells us that Jesus addressed the parable in today's gospel to those who were convinced of their own righteousness and despised everyone else. And so Jesus is proclaiming it to everyone who is convinced of his or her own unrighteousness, whether that person has been religiously observant or not until now. What's the Lord want from us? He wants us first to recognize we humbly need God's mercy and come ask for it, like we Catholics do humbly in the sacrament of confession. Second, rather than focusing on others' sins, he wants us to concentrate on our own. The problem with the Pharisee in the gospel was that he preferred to focus on what he was doing right rather than admit what he was doing wrong. That's a perennial temptation. We focus on the commandments we're keeping and others are breaking rather than the ones we're breaking and the saints are keeping. Many of us, including those of us who pray, leave unjustified because we haven't been humble enough to beat our breasts and acknowledge our need for God's help. On Sunday, we will go to church to pray whether we might initially be prone to go like the Pharisee or like the publican, or a little bit like both of them. Each of us wants to leave justified with our prayers heard. The only way to do so is to pray humbly for mercy and insistently, like the importune woman before the unjust judge we met last week. The church helps us by the prayers it puts on our lips, in which, with others and for them, we pray that God will be merciful to us, take away our sins, and make us worthy to receive him. If we pray sincerely in this way, then not only will we leave church this Sunday with our prayers heard, but we will be prepared to meet the Lord whenever he comes for us at the end of our life, so that we may leave this life justified and be admitted with him into the temple of the eternal Jerusalem. For only the one who so humbles himself will be so exalted. Let's learn this message in the Lord's consequential conversation, and with his help, live it. God bless you all. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 